Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Today's episode is also brought to you by flitterweb.com. It's the index of the internet and is now full of great reviews for the history of Byzantium. Thank you so much for the kind words. Check out how wonderful I am at flitterweb.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the history of Byzantium. Episode 62, God's Punishment. Last time we talked about how the Roman government and army managed to adapt to the onslaught of the Arabs. This week I want to talk about how Roman self-belief survived such an assault on its ego. At the end of the last century, various listeners asked about whether the Byzantines saw themselves as diminished and less powerful now that the Western Empire had fallen. The answer then was no, not really. Once Constantinople was built, the Eastern Empire began to develop an identity of its own, separate from the old sense of one united empire spanning the continent. By the time of Justinian's day, men were thrilled to hear that an old province had been retaken when Vandal Africa fell, and they cheered in the Hippodrome as the triumph processed by them, and I doubt many of them were turning to their neighbours to say, this is all very well, but geographically we're a much smaller empire than we used to be. Our ability to look at political maps with the click of a button or perceive events as part of a decline and fall across the centuries changes our perspective dramatically from the people who lived through it. But understandably, as we reach 700 AD, listener GT asks, I have the same question I posed at the end of the 6th century. What is the state of Byzantine self-identity at this point? How was their ego doing given all the territorial losses? Did it change how they thought of themselves? The answer now is yes, but also no. In Constantinople, the emperor was still seen as God's representative on earth. The empire was still seen as the place to be, as civilization. It was still thought to be God-protected and directed. It was still thought of as the descendant of the ancient Roman Empire and was still believed to have a glorious future at the centre of mankind's journey. How, you may well ask, could this still be true? How could the loss of so much not reflect badly on the Romans? Well, let's ask them. What did the Romans say about their defeats? Interestingly, the primary response is to blame other Christians. 
John Bar Penke, a Mesopotamian monophysite, is clear in his writings that all the emperors from Justinian to Heraclius are responsible for the victory of the Arabs. By constantly pushing their heretical orthodox beliefs instead of the monophysite truth, God had finally had enough and given the eastern provinces to the Arabs. A fellow Monophysite writer from Syria goes further and gives Heraclius a good kicking by claiming that he would never have won back the East if it weren't for Shavaraz's rebellion. Hence, the Arabs were merely God's latest vehicle for taking the East from Roman hands after the Persians proved to be unfit for the task. Some Orthodox Christians also blame Heraclius for the Arabs' victories, but rather than his orthodoxy, they blame his willingness to compromise by espousing monothletism. The theologian Maximus the Confessor, who was eventually mutilated by Constance II, damned this imperial policy for watering down the clearly correct formulations of the Council of Chalcedon. Well away from such worries in the West, Fredegarius, the Frankish chronicler, agreed with this version of events and blames it for God's decision to abandon the emperor. Some Christians blame themselves. The patriarch of Jerusalem, Sophronius, announced that the Saracens have risen up against us because of our sins, a sentiment echoed by the renowned Anastasius of Sinai. Having travelled throughout the empire and seen Arab rule firsthand, he still has no doubt that it's the Christians' wickedness that has brought this situation about. He wrote, Believe me when I say that even if the race of the Saracens were to depart from us today, straight away tomorrow the blues and greens would rise up again and the East, Arabia, Palestine and many other lands would bring slaughter upon themselves. He is convinced that the Romans are in a time of crisis, similar to that faced by the kingdom of Israel when they were dragged off to exile in Babylon. As you can see from this collection of reactions, Romans and even non-Roman Christians viewed the world through a very specific lens. The history of the world was understood in terms of God's relationship with the Jews and then the Christians. The arrival of a new people professing different beliefs was simply another episode in the great drama of sin and forgiveness rather than a reflection on military or administrative weakness. Some Romans did try to fit these events into a historical narrative, but it was still one dominated by the larger Christian story. One of the earliest reactions to the Arab invasions comes in a story called The Teachings of Jacob, the story was written on a common theme for the 7th century, that of Roman Jews coming to realise the truth and being baptised. But within the story, Jacob hears news of the Arabs and of their prophet. Jacob comes to the conclusion that this prophet could be the Antichrist and the Arab invasion's portents of the end times, as predicted in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. From the voice of Jacob, though, we finally get the sort of frank assessment of the Roman Empire that I think many of you would have expected to hear by now. One of the characters says, The territory of the Romans extended up to our days from Scotland, Britain, Spain, Francia, Italy, Greece and Thrace, as far as Antioch, Syria, Persia and the entire East. 
one sees there still the statues of their emperors, in marble as well as bronze. For everyone was subjugated to the Romans by divine decree. But now we see Romania humiliated. Romania is reduced, torn, and shivered asunder. But even in this moment of clarity, the author still won't mourn. Another character responds, even if it is diminished a little, we hope that it will rise again. That sense that no matter how far the empire had fallen, it would rise again, permeated the apocalyptic writings of Christians for centuries to come. A story attributed to St. Andrew the Fool predicted that soon the Saracens would be brought low for their impiety. While in the writings attributed to Methodius, a popular legend was born that the last ever Roman emperor was destined to march all the way to Jerusalem and prepare the ground for the second coming of Jesus. Within imperial circles, we get a sense of this sort of optimism as the century wears on. In the writing which accompanied the Sixth Ecumenical Council, for example, the one which Constantine IV called in 680, in the letter summoning his bishops to the capital, the patriarch reminds them of God's ability to bring victory, and the Pope hit the same theme in his reply, wishing that God's blessing would fall on their deliberations and also bring the destruction of their enemies. In another anti-Jewish story from around this time, a character answers an accuser who points out the destruction of Romania, and the reply given is this. This is the most incredible thing, that the church, after having fought, remained unmoved. While the head and the empire stood firm, the whole body could be renewed, but a people without a head would completely die. In a way, this sentiment echoes the whole theme of the previous podcast. The fact that Constantinople survived such an onslaught is surely a miracle in itself. The empire's continued existence points to God's favour. He may have punished the Roman people for now, but it was all part of a larger plan. This note of hope will be hit again when the capital survives the great siege of 717. The Byzantines were so convinced of their Christian worldview that even such a calamity as the Arab invasions couldn't shake their beliefs. Aiding them in this mindset was the fact that the Arabs did not emerge from the desert proclaiming a fully formed new religion. As I went into in detail in the Origins of Islam sale episode, the Arab conquests happened so fast that many of the conquerors would only slowly come to appreciate their new system of beliefs and in which ways it differed from those of the Christians and the Jews. This is not a radical statement. Many men in the conquering armies were illiterate and had been Christians or Jews or pagans all of their life, swept up in the excitement of their victories and spread out across hundreds of miles of territory, it's no surprise that it took many decades for a fully Islamic religion to be articulated and understood. We can see this clearly from the writings of the Romans. The great Syrian theologian John of Damascus, who wrote in the early 700s, described the beliefs of the Arabs as merely another Christian heresy, while Anastasius of Sinai describes his debates with the Arabs in Christian terms. 
He knows that they don't believe Jesus was the son of God and that they find that idea to be abhorrent, but he doesn't describe their beliefs as being clearly different to his own. Even in the 900s, Nicephorus wrote his history without referring to Islam at all, simply calling the Arabs pagans. Theophanes does go into more detail, but mocks the elements of Muhammad's biography that have filtered through to him. This is such an important thing to understand about the Arab invasions. Today, our perspective on Islam is so coloured by the Crusades, or the fact that we're taught in school how each religion is defined. It would be easy to project backwards and imagine that the Romans were horrified by this clearly defined alien culture smashing against it. But the reality was the Romans didn't recognise the Arabs as all that different from themselves. Of course they called them barbarians and pagans, just as they did all foreign peoples. But the reason Christians could go on acting as if Islam didn't exist is because the Arabs professed a faith that came from the same thought world. The Arabs would talk about Abraham and Isaac, Moses and Jesus. Throughout the 7th century, they seemed to possess the same basic understanding of the universe as everyone else. Therefore, the Romans understood their defeat as God's punishment, rather than as evidence that he didn't exist, or worse, that Muhammad had superseded Jesus. The thinness of the Arab conquest also aided this point of view. As we've talked about already, the settled populations far outnumbered the Bedouin armies of Arabia, so it didn't seem to the Byzantines or the conquered peoples that too much had changed. It wasn't until the 700s that the first truly impressive mosques appeared and began to change the cityscape of Damascus or Jerusalem. And because the Arab armies lived in brand new garrison towns, the Christians in the former Byzantine territories were able to carry on their lives much as they had done before. Patriarchs still led their communities and appointed bishops and clergy to run the churches. Pilgrims still crossed the border to visit Jerusalem. The Chalcedonian churchmen within the caliphate still received news from the Roman Empire. The former Roman provinces of the East were, in the words of historian Peter Brown, not even conquered territories in the strict sense, for they were hardly occupied. They were treated as the rich neighbours of the Arabs, who paid protection money to the Muslims as a sort of standing fine for not having embraced Islam. In the words of one of the conquerors, these provinces were a garden protected by our spears. All of this would change, of course. Already the reign of Abd al-Malik, the sitting caliph in our narrative, marks a turning point. You'll remember his change to the coins of the caliphate. He's also the man who built the Dome of the Rock, the great mosque in Jerusalem, with anti-Christian verses carved into it. He forbid Christians from displaying the cross and demanded that the language of the administration be Arabic, so that new applicants were forced to learn it. But that is for another century. In 700, the Romans could still look at the Saracens, a term long used to describe the Arab cavalrymen who fought in their armies as temporary holders of God's favour. The major physical manifestation of God's continuing support for the Romans 
was Constantinople. Listener G said, You mentioned that the residents of the city believed it was protected by God. Could you explore this concept in more detail? I know that there was a tradition that an angel guided Constantine in setting the city's boundaries, but what are some other traditions about Constantinople's relationship with the divine? A full answer to this could take quite a while, and hopefully one day I can explore some of the weird and wonderful things which developed in the capital over the centuries. The short answer, though, comes courtesy of historian Jonathan Harris, who lists five main myths or legends which the Byzantines believed, or at least promoted, about their city. 1. The city was founded by a saintly emperor who had designed it to be the centre of government of the Christian world. 2. The city enjoyed special protection by God and the Virgin Mary and would remain unconquered. As the centuries wore on, that unconquered part would increasingly be seen as fact. As for the Virgin Mary, we already met the celebrated icon which was paraded along the walls during the Avar siege, but there were other relics too which connected her to the city. 3. The divinely appointed emperors ruled from this city. They ruled alone for the benefit of their people, just as God did in heaven. 4. The city was a holy place, like Rome or Jerusalem. Not only was it divinely founded and consecrated, but its churches were full of relics and the bones of saints together with the parts of the true cross that Heraclius had brought home. And 5. Its wealth reflected divine favour and made it greater than any other city in the world. According to Harris, 3,600 different relics have been mentioned in connection with the city, representing about 476 different saints. The belief that prayers offered in front of these relics had extra power, or could actually cure diseases, was common. Over time, even mundane parts of the city could become imbued with mystical significance. For example, the pillars and the door bolts of the Hagia Sophia were eventually thought to be able to fix certain ailments. As the centuries wear on, the ancientness of Constantinople, the fact that it had never been sacked, and the fact that it was so huge compared to everything around it, would give it an aura that was hard to ignore. The church, just like the government and the army, benefited hugely from Constantinople's survival. The patriarch could continue to appoint his bishops and send out orders from a safe position. It sounds cold to say, but even if your local church was destroyed or your local priest killed in one of the Persian or Arab raids, they could be replaced. Local bishops remained key figures in their areas, and there would always be new recruits because the church had wealth to offer. The continuation of an orthodox communion directed from Constantinople was another factor in making sure that the beleaguered people of Anatolia still identified with the empire. Without this shared faith, and with the relentless raids of the Arabs, some might have come to identify the government with heavy taxation in exchange for no security. Despite the heavy focus today on Christian faith, we should remember that people are always just people. Identifying yourself heavily with the message of Jesus does not necessarily mean your behaviour can match his. 
you may remember that Justinian II's ecumenical council was concerned with updating church laws. From its enactments, we learn about all the behavior going on out in the provinces which the bishops were concerned about. Predictable concerns, such as gambling, adultery, and pornography, were once again outlawed, and thank goodness they wiped all of that out. But more specifically, plenty of ancient pagan traditions were still going on. The Feast of the Kalans was celebrated out in the countryside. Lewd dancing and cross-dressing still took place at weddings and other occasions. Farmers still invoked Dionysus when gathering in grapes for wine. Men and women still bought amulets and other lucky charms to wear. The less-than-virtuous practices of some clergymen are also revealed. Restrictions were enacted against harbouring women in one's home, lending money to local businesses, and staying at wedding receptions after performing their official duties. Monks were forbidden from growing their hair back or changing out of their robes, as apparently some were doing both so they could sneak off for some fun in their spare time. As God-fearing as people were, and as dramatic a time in which they lived, we shouldn't forget that life for most people remained what life always is. We'll finish today with a couple of listener questions. Listener CB asked, What happened to the patriarchs in the East when their cities fell to the caliphate? Did they flee or stay and switch political allegiance? As you now know, they stayed where they were and continued to serve as the leading men of their community. This was particularly true in an isolated place like Egypt, where the Monophysite patriarch really did speak for almost all of his countrymen. The situation was more complicated in Syria, where there was a patriarch for both Monophysites and the Orthodox. Under some caliphs, the patriarchs loyal to the emperor were allowed to operate freely, and at other times they were suppressed. Generally, the Monophysites were allowed more freedom. In terms of switching sides, it's worth saying that almost everyone who remained in the caliphate essentially switched sides in that they began to cooperate with the Arabs. We do hear of occasional uprisings like the Matraites, but they are rare. And it was also somewhat rare at this stage for people to convert to Islam. As we discussed earlier, as life was continuing much as it had, there wasn't much sense for many that they were switching sides and working against the empire. It's an interesting case for those who did serve in official capacities for the Muslims. We've already looked at the sailors who built and manned Muawiyah's fleet, and there were also many Christian soldiers who joined the ranks of the army and went happily plundering through imperial territory. To me, this suggests that they didn't think they were marching with enemies of their faith. They saw the new conquerors as no imminent threat to their faith, so they took the money and carried on. Most of the provincial administrators were Christians who were now collecting taxes for the Arabs. Uh, one example of this is Theophilus of Edessa, who in the late 700s worked as the court astrologer directly for the Caliph al-Mahdi. Theophilus was a Christian and wrote a history of the Middle East where he clearly champions people like Heraclius for their very obviously Christian victories. 
and yet he watches himself when describing the beliefs of his new masters. He only feels really confident criticising their promises of carnal delights in paradise, something a moral Christian would understandably find distasteful. Listener AF asked about why the Byzantines didn't make a serious effort to reclaim the eastern provinces, given that their populations remained largely Christian for centuries. Hopefully you can see from the narrative that so far the empire is in no shape to finance that sort of campaign, let alone having enough recruits to do it. I think within that question, there's also the issue of ideology. Uh, We talked about the Sixth Ecumenical Council, uh, which Constantine IV used to abandon monothaletism. Though it hadn't been uniformly successful, that idea had made some progress toward bringing Monophysites and Chalcedonians together. Constantine could abandon it, though, because he could see the Monophysites would not be rejoining the empire anytime soon. And I know discussing Monophysites is not why most of you listen to this podcast, but the endless attempts of the emperors to find a compromise is the essence of the Roman Empire. The belief that the different peoples of the Mediterranean could be brought together under one government. By abandoning monothletism, the Byzantines began the process of looking inward, seeing themselves as God's chosen people and perhaps forgetting that their cousins across the mountains were once a part of them. But then again, the story is far from over, and perhaps one day the Romans will look again on the eastern Mediterranean and consider if they can retake it. That's a good place to leave this episode as it sets up the next one nicely. Next week, you will hear an interview with David Gyllenhaal, whose PhD thesis is about how Byzantine self-identity was affected by the 7th century. After that episode, I will answer your final end-of-the-century questions, and then it's back to the narrative. If you're interested in learning more about the mysterious origins of Islam and the interaction between the early caliphs and the Romans, then think about buying the sale episode. Go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com for more information. And thanks again for giving me such nice reviews on Flitterweb. I've been uh, browsing the site this afternoon and... uh, clicking around to see other podcasts. If you visit there, you can uh, give your review to Revolutions and uh, to Dan Carlin, and you can also uh, see my review of The History of Rome. I'm the first to give it a review, so you can see what I really think of Mike Duncan, which sounds ominous, but sadly it's all complimentary. Um, you can also submit sites to Flitterweb, so if there's a site that you visit that's not on there yet, uh, you can submit it, and the more reviews you write, the more influence you can have on whether sites... Uh, get selected, and whether positive reviews uh, get marked as helpful. So uh, I was on there clicking around. I was submitting uh, Signcast, the Seinfeld podcast, and the Bald Move Network, who have a bunch of uh, uh, TV show podcasts, which I listen to. Um, I also threw some love to the Angel Rewatch, another TV podcast that spawned out of uh, work I did at the TV Critics. So go there, support the things you love, and support a fellow listener who is supporting me. Thanks so much for listening.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.